Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels. Our guest this week, we've got Bill Shimoda, professional walleye tournament angler from Minnesota, back on the show. We've had Bill on a number of times in the past, and he's kind of a river rat. He's been in the tournament scene for a really long time, so he's got unbelievable stories and just reflections and experience in so many scenarios that we want to talk to him about. But one question that seems to be coming up a lot this spring is um, coming to us about fishing, you know, the tougher spring conditions, tough conditions, maybe when water is really cold or or water temps plummet for some reason. We always get weather events in the spring that make for tough days where the temperatures are going backwards and uh, things aren't perfect. Well, Bill's the type of guy, he's fished tournaments, you know, in these conditions where, you know, these are probably the days that maybe some of us would choose not to fish, but the hardcore guys are going to get out when they can. And you're going to experience these conditions. And, you know, you can turn a really tough day into a pretty decent day if you just figure a few things out. And Bill does such an awesome job talking, speaking on his experience of just some of the toughest early spring ice cold water conditions that he's been in before. And, uh, you know, just just it's just so much fun to have Bill on uh, just reflecting on all of his experience. I mean, this is the type of guy that for most of us, you could honestly say somebody like bill has forgotten more about walleye fishing than most of us will ever learn in our lifetime and i think that's true when i talk to him just how casually he talks about some of this uh, some of these his strategy that is just mind-blowing to somebody like me so very very fun interview every time i have a chance to talk to bill uh but yeah we're talking uh, cold water spring walleyes with bill shimoda let's get into the interview So that's going to be the big premise of this conversation, you know, river fishing for you, man, in the spring, like, do you consider yourself just like a full blown river rat or like, what does, what does river fishing really mean to you in terms of your career as an angler? Oh, the, the, the Mississippi river in general is, is definitely uh, super special to me and my career and everything. I feel like, you know, I've often told myself that it's the body of water that built my career really. And, uh, you know, mostly because of probably because of just success I've had there in, in the past in tournaments, you know, basically it's put me on the map and, and that sort of thing, you know, and of course it is the closest major tournament body of water to uh, where I live. So, you know, I consider it my home water too. So uh, yeah, the, the river is definitely uh, got a special place. For you on the Mississippi river in the springtime, do you look back like, do you still fish the river pretty similarly to, to you did 15, 20 years ago? Um, or has that river really changed for you? Or maybe you've changed as an angler and you, you know, talked a little bit, talk a little bit about your evolution on the Mississippi river. Well, I think you're forever, you're forever learning stuff on the, on a river, on any river. Um, but you're also, it's also changing constantly too. So, which is, which is good and bad. I think from a tournament, uh, fisherman's perspective, I like the fact that it changes and, and there's, you know, the winning spot is somewhere different all the time, you know, cause that's a problem you run into in a lot of lakes and stuff is you run out of secrets, right? Like everybody kind of gets to know what you're supposed to be doing or on a, on a river system, uh, forever changing, whether it's from, you know, structure moving, sandbars moving around, um, the Army Corps of Engineers building rock here and there, creating new spots, creating deflections in the current, that sort of thing. Uh, there's, there's always, you know, there's always something different going on. 
uh, the backwaters, a lot of times in the backwaters, th- that'll change uh, mostly because of like sand and silt moving around. So one year, this one backwater little shoot might be 10 feet deep. And in two years, there might be sand, uh, sand sticking out of the water there. And the channel has moved over about 150 yards. You know, it's just forever changing. Um, and I think the way that we fish it probably changes also. Um, you know, I think we just learn more things, obviously. I feel like I tell people that too, every single time you fish on that river, you're going to learn something and you're going to, you know, just keep putting all those in your basket, all those memories in your basket. And, uh, you try to use them every time you go out, but I don't know. I feel like some of the things I do have not changed. Um, you know, for instance, like, uh, like pulling three ways and hand lining, um, you know, fishing plastics, that sort of thing. A lot of the, a lot of the staple uh, techniques have not changed, but uh, the river is forever changing for sure. Does the Mississippi river, is that its own beast? Like when you look at it, like big picture, you know, like from a tournament standpoint, is, is the Mississippi river entirely its own beast? Or do you feel like the Mississippi river relates to other rivers in some ways? Uh, yeah, the, the the Mississippi River is is you know a pretty stereotypical river, um, but you got so many different pools and which essentially create so many different ecosystems. You know, like when you fish, when you think of Pool Four, you know, which is home water to me in general, uh, you have Lake Pepin. You know, so you got a completely different world having Lake Pepin out there. It's it's really almost like a reservoir. It is a reservoir basically. Um, you know, and then you get some of the other, uh, you get some of the other pools down south farther, like Lacrosse, Prairie du Chien, and, and things like that, down in pools like seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, you get more of the backwaters where you get like these giant, uh, like shallow uh areas where you get these little channels and stuff going through them, and it's it's where a ton of the walleyes live because a lot of the bait fish are back in that that. Uh, more fertile areas, you know, there's, there's more, uh, there's less current and more bait back in some of these backwaters. So that's where a lot of your fishing happens. You know, now you get into certain areas like, like the upper end of pool four or pool three, you know, where you don't have as many backwaters. Well, then a lot of them fish live in the main channel. So, you know, the Mississippi river in general, it's so diverse. There's so much going on there that, uh, you know, every, everywhere you go in that thing, every pool is so different. And that's one thing I really like about it. I think in general, a lot of the ways that you fish are the same, um, but you just gotta, you gotta learn new spots every time you go to a different piece of that puzzle. Oh yeah, man. I think that, you know, I do not come, uh, with a river fishing pedigree whatsoever. And I feel like you river guys have that, um, you know, the, the mentality or the strategy of like, you know, you don't fish memories. You have such a, 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 it's so simple and casual to just always be finding new spots, even if it's like day to day, well, you know, especially week to week or, you know, season to season. But, you know, I grew up fishing, fishing on lakes and, and, you know, where, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm probably still in the stages of life where I fish memories a lot. Like I talk about not doing that, but it's, uh, you know, some days it actually gets me by just fine. Like uh, I could put together a good day just having my own little milk run of spots, but I haven't learned a new spot, you know, for, for months sometimes. Sometimes I'll go a whole season and look back and be like, God darn it, I didn't I didn't try to learn enough, you know, where you almost kind of have to force yourself in those situations. But on rivers, 
it's like a built in, like there's just no way you could fish the same spot day to day, week to week and, and always have success. So anyways, I just love, I just love listening to you guys talk about it. I think it's, it's great perspective that I always want to tap into. Everybody's got a little slightly different sort of take on it or way of explaining it. We can all relate um, in different ways. So I appreciate you spending some time on that. But I want to get more specific in this conversation. Um, yeah, I, t- I told you just briefly before we started recording, but I get a bunch of questions, especially this time of year, people talking about you know, fishing tougher river conditions. You know, the conditions change all the time. They're very rarely... Uh, excellent fishing conditions on a river in the spring. You get weather events or whatever. The runoff is different sometimes. Um, you know, all the different environmental factors and the, you know, structural changes to a river. Um, and then, as, and as an, as a tournament angler, you've fished all those conditions. I know that because you can't, you know, when and where you fish tournaments, uh, you know, it's not, it's not up to you. You don't, you don't just schedule it for the good weather days. You've fished the tough conditions, uh, whether you like to or not. Um, and so that's why I want to have you on and talk about some of the tougher conditions, um, on rivers in the spring. More specifically, I get a lot of questions on what to do when the water temperatures plummet in the spring, when, when, you know, weather events come in and, and we've had some good consistent trending weather and then all of a sudden, boom, temperatures drop. Um, or, or even early spring when the water temperatures are, are just still cold, uh, like pre-spawn, you know, which, uh, you know, big part of the Midwest right now, we're obviously definitely in pre-spawn, like, you know, the water's just cold, but like when the water's cold, what do you do as an angler? What are some memories that you have of some tough conditions when the water temperatures were cold, the fish were off, like, Tell me that little little bit of story, and then let's try to get into some more specific stuff after that. But talk to me about cold spring river water for walleyes. Sure, yeah, no, uh, I could really. I there's one instance that definitely sticks sticks in my head when when you say that. It's basically, a, you know, obviously in the spring the water is cold to begin with, but now if you add a cold front into that, it can it can be a recipe for some super super tough fishing. And I remember a time a few years back, my dad and I were actually fishing in a tournament on the Mississippi. And, uh, you know, we had a decent practice. We we were catching a few fish and then this front hit, it got cold. And uh, I don't remember the exact water temperatures off the top of my head, but I know we had lost like three, four or five degrees of water temperature. And it went from, you know, being able to catch several fish a day to like, holy cow, what is going on here? Like, so we went three days without catching a fish on the Mississippi River. I had one fish on. Uh, we were mostly relying on hand lining. You know, I thought that was going to be what I needed to do to just cover water. And, you know, usually that's kind of what I rely on to just catch numbers that time of year. And even that went to, like, no way. They're not touching it. You know, like I said, I had one fish on in three days. It's like, you can't even make this up. But what I did learn, um, you know, most, most of the people ended up zeroing in that tournament. What I did learn though, that a lot of the fish that were actually caught, they went back to the basics. Um, the biggest, the biggest uh, player was probably a jig and a fathead. You know, the guys were casting these little seams and stuff, trying to catch a couple of big ones and they ended up either using a jig and a fathead 
or uh, blade bait, you know, and that blade bait was somehow still getting a few reaction bites out of those fish, not as many as they were probably catching the week before on the, on that thing. But, um, but yeah, never, you know, I just never even thought of putting a fat head down. I just, I prefer not to use live bait if I can anytime. And so, yeah, that was one, that was one tournament I'll never forget because it went from wasn't great to holy cow this is unbelievable i just went all day without catching a walleye in the mississippi in the spring to i just went two days in a row three days in a row so it can get bad you know it can certainly get bad in a hurry and when you get a front with already cold water um, but sometimes you just you really got to slow down you know the fish are there they just basically get shocked you know their bodies are starting to slowly warm up with the water temperature and all of a sudden they go backwards and uh i just feel like it really just shuts them off completely they don't and and they're starting to get ready to spawn too and that doesn't help and so they just they just forget to eat for a while there yeah like you said something there you're talking about hand lining i don't have like any hand lining shows or interviews or anything i've done you know 200 of these interviews and i've never like done any sort of a deep dive on hand lining. I'm not necessarily going to ask you to do a deep dive on hand lining, but I think you got to describe that a little bit more, especially to the anglers that don't really like have or do any hand lining. Like what's this, what's the setup of hand lining and what is the situation? What are the situations where hand lining is the deal? I, I, Cause I, I don't like, why is that not so much more widespread on every river? Like why, like why is hand lining? Like what is hand lining? Well, yeah, no, it's it's a great topic for sure because a lot of people don't don't do it, don't even know what it is. But you know, basically, handlining was it was created out in the Detroit River because they have super fast current out there, and you know, so other out there, the only thing there really was to do was jig with the with the heavy jig. Well, somebody at one point, I wish I knew the guy because I would I would love to talk to him. He's probably not even around anymore. But somebody thought, gosh, if I could just put a really heavy weight down and troll on the bottom with a couple lures behind it. You know, I'm going to catch some of these fish that I'm trying to, you know, put a little jig in front of. And so that's kind of where, where hand lining was created was out in the Detroit river. You know, they have that more of that three, four, five, six mile an hour current out there. So it's really hard to keep things on the bottom. And, uh, you know, so hand lining was, it was created out there. And then actually, and let me back up, I guess, for a second and tell you what it is. So handlining is basically you have a, a spring-loaded reel on your boat with a, with a cable, a steel cable. It's usually a plastic-coated cable. And the reel, it retracts, kind of like a fly reel. It, you pull the cable out, it sucks it back in when you let up on it. And then off of that cable, then you have what's called your shank, which is uh, another usually steel cable with clevises every so often. And then on the bottom of that, you have a big weight. So typically anywhere from one to two pounds, a uh, pound and a quarter, not ounces, pounds. Remember I'm talking oh, yeah, here. That's a big pound, weight. pound and a quarter is kind of the standard size. Okay. Uh, you know, so you got that big chunk of weight on the bottom. And then off that chink, I was just telling you about, that's where you run your lines off of. So you run leads. Now, typically, two leads is pretty common. Um, and so one might be, it's usually, I end up, I usually go double. The bottom one is half the length of the top one. Um, so like in dirtier water and, and that, I use maybe like a 5-foot and a 10-foot or a 10-foot and a 20 or a 15 and a 30. I usually double my length. Um, so on the bottom, you know, you'd have 5 feet of line 
to a shallow diving crankbait in the top, you'd have 10 feet of line to a shallow diving crankbait. And that's uh, surprisingly, all that stuff hanging down there really doesn't get all that tangled up as long as you deploy it and everything, right? And so now what you do with that, you get all that in the water and you slowly let that big chunk of weight down there. And now you can just basically walk that weight along. You know, that's what I tell people. I see basically just walk it. Imagine just hopping that big chunk of weight, you know, taking little steps. And now as you're walking that big chunk of lead, those two crankbaits are just following right behind just perfectly. They're sitting right on the bottom, right where they need to be constantly. You know, now they do snag up once in a while, or you might snag some debris and that sort of thing. But when you look at the big picture, you've got two baits constantly in the strike zone. You know, what other technique can you do that with? You know, there really isn't a lot of other options, and that's why handlining is is so so effective when, especially when you get higher water. Uh, when we're talking like Mississippi River or other rivers, you know, like the Missouri or the Illinois, when you get that higher dirty water, uh, handlining really excels, and, and a lot of that is just because you're putting two baits right where they need to be at all times. Is it like there's nobody? I mean, this is a dumb question. Like downriggers, is I mean, I'm sure that's been tried once upon a time. Like, how do how is this different than running like a downrigger with clips and and all that? No, that's a that's a good point. And now, um, the reason why why handlining, why running it with your hand is so effective, is because of the way you can constantly adjust. So, like, typically I'll zigzag back and forth, and if I'm going up onto a bank, it gets a little shallow. All I do is I throw the line towards the reel and the reel sucks it in right okay and now i'm falling off uh, you know maybe i'm going from 12 feet down into 20 feet and i go to like pump that weight and i don't feel bottom well all i do is i just let a little extra line slide through my fingers and then then you kind of feel that little tush you know you feel the weight hit the bottom okay and then i go back to pumping it so if I'm pumping it and I don't feel bottom, I just keep letting line out. So there's really, you know, it's all done with one hand with ease. Now, if you would try to do that, uh, you would never do it with a downrigger. You'd have that thing snagged up and ripped off your boat and probably with a matter of hours. But, um, you know, just the way you can adjust it. Um, and also, I should mention that people do the same thing with a, with a rod. You know, it's called pole lining or some people call it rod lining where essentially you have the same setup, you have really weight, uh, really heavy weight around a pound, and then you have the same setup with a shank, and then the two long leads coming off of that. And, and basically you do the same thing with the, um, with the pole lining, but in my opinion, it's just it's harder to adjust, you know, because you're kind of reeling and then letting out and reeling and letting out. Um, but there are guys that are, that swear by it, that, that prefer it over hand lining. I definitely don't want to sit here and say that hand lining is always better than pole lining because I don't think it is. Uh, and then some people's bodies too, just have a hard time handling, you know, holding on to that big weight all day long. I know the first couple times of the year that I do it, my whole shoulder and half my body is sore, but after a few days, they seem to kind of get used to it. Is that something like in some of the like you said on the Detroit River or sometimes Mississippi River? Like, is that a year-round kind of a deal? Like, just because you know you're talking about it's probably a lot more versatile than it looks, right? Like, it to the to the untrained eye, to me, it looks like, I mean, it just looks so it it, it looks so cumbersome. It, it looks like it would just be 
totally crazy to be running those baits uh, with those leads so close together and you're changing depths like you're talking about, but it's probably a little bit more versatile the way you explain it than, than it definitely looks like. Is that something that you kind of keep in your bag of tricks on, on those river systems like year round or is that kind of a spring deal for you? Uh, no, absolutely. It works year round. I think why you probably hear about it and see it more in the spring is because a lot of times, say for instance, the Detroit river, well, there's gazillion walleyes that run up into that river in the spring. And that's just when more people are fishing there, you know, um, you know, same thing with like pool for the Mississippi, a lot of the sauger, sauger and walleye are all up in the upper end of the river. So you see a lot of guys handlining, uh, that time of year, but no, absolutely. It, it, it works all year round. Uh, works really good in the fall. Um, you know, for instance, uh, actually I won a tournament in September handlining down in quad cities years ago. Uh, I made, uh, Missouri river, um, made a top five in the FLW championship out there handlining, you know, it's probably the only one to ever do it at that time. You probably still are, man. You probably <laughs> still are. That's, I don't, Oh, you never see anything like that out here. That's crazy. Well, you know, it's, it's for me, it's a confidence thing. Like I know if I could zigzag back and forth a couple spots and them fish are there, I feel like I can catch them, you know, for instance, kind of crazy that like last year, uh, in Chamberlain, I started the tournament handlining up at the tail race. There was one other guy handlining too, I believe, though, that day. Um, the year before, two years before that, in Sault Ste. Marie and the St. Mary's River, I uh, started the tournament handlining up at the up at the Power Dam. I was definitely the only one handlining that tournament. Um, it's just one of them things that can work, you know, is that you, you know, win every time. No, but it, it's sometimes it can really get you a lot of bites. Um, there was just kind of, there was a handful of us that basically took uh, handlining from the Detroit river and brought it over to the Mississippi river. Um, you know, Jason Shakir Eric Olson, they were a couple of the first ones, um, you know, along with myself and a guy by the name of Rodney York. He was, he was the one that taught me how to handline. And so we were kind of the first ones to bring it to the Mississippi River. And, uh, you know, now since we've, I was one of the first ones to do it on the Illinois River. I should have won an MWC way back when, my first year fishing professionally handlining. And then, you know, like I said, I brought it to the Missouri. I brought it to uh, St. Mary's and a lot of other places. It's uh, it's kind of fun to do it, you know, in places where potentially nobody's ever done it or done it very little just very effective you know now like i said in the fall the way it works uh and it also works in the summer i think the only thing is when you start uh, early season in the spring a lot of your baits they're just going to be kind of smaller right like those two inch two and a half inch baits um and and as the water warms up for me a lot of times i'll just go with i'll go with bigger baits you know up to like four and even five inch baits and then, you know, I may go to like a jointed style bait or I may go to, you know, something that has more rattle, rattles in it and, and that sort of thing. So you, you start out just kind of small, subtle, quiet. And then as the water warms up and especially you get into like post-spawn and if you're fishing for post-spawn males a lot of times, then you go with some bigger stuff because a lot of times they're not necessarily uh, attacking it to eat it. They're just attacking it to attack it. You know, they're, they're pinning it at the bottom and swatting at it and stuff. They're garden eggs and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, you just got to play around with a lot of the baits you use. Um, there's a lot of it into, uh, color. I feel like color is a big thing, you know, obviously in a muddy, dirty, muddy river, you're going to need something bright, right? You want them to see it. 
uh, pinks, oranges, chartreuses, fire tiger, all that kind of stuff can be really good. Um, but on the other token, now when you get a clean river, um, I've done really good on like more natural looking stuff. Like when you get a, a clean river, you put a fire tiger on, you might not get bit while well, sudden you put a blue and silver on that kind of looks more natural or a shad color or something like that. Well, all of a sudden you start getting bit again. And, uh, it's pretty incredible certain days how one color will just outfish another color. If you have any fishing memory that you would like to commemorate or have questions about commemorating a fishing memory with a replica made of any fish that has ever graced your net, get in touch with Rizavi Fish Replicas owned and operated by Jamie Rizavi over in uh, New Rockford, North Dakota at Rizavi Taxidermy Studio. You can find them online at RizaviTaxidermyStudio.com or find them on Facebook at Rizavi Taxidermy Studio. You can see the pictures here at the JMO headquarters in Devil's Lake. We have some phenomenal replicas made by Jamie and his crew hanging on our walls, which we absolutely love. They look absolutely perfect, just like the fish that were reeled in that day. And every chance we get to go in and admire them and tell those stories and share those stories with each other, we absolutely do. Again, if you want, or if you have any questions about getting a fish replica made to commemorate any great trophy memory you have of fishing, Get in touch with Jamie Rizvi at Rizvi Fish Replicas. You won't be disappointed. Thinking back now, you know, the, the cold water events in the Spring Rivers is so popular. I get so many questions on it. And I definitely wanted to touch on the hand lighting deal. I definitely get questions about that, but I don't know anything about it. So I'm glad we can can go on that. We can even keep talking about hand lighting a little bit if it, if it works out. But, you know, even like just crankbaiting in general in certain situations in the spring. Like you see it, like if you go on YouTube, you know, there's all kinds of little videos of people popping up with all their favorite, you know, spring river situations, you know, river opportunities and, and cranking is kind of popular, even in pre-spawn situations. Um, what would be some conditions, situations that you've been in, in the spring when you've done some cool water cranking? Like you talk about, um, you know, outside of just hand lining or, or uh-huh. even, even more, even, you know, what, however you want to say that, but cranking in cold water is another popular question I get. What can you tell me about that? Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a thing for sure. Um, you know, obviously with the, with the hand lining, um, uh, and I should add three weighing also to that category, you know, basically a three way with a big, uh, two, three, four five ounce weight, you know, with back to a lead to a, a crankbait is another great way to, to get a stick bait down to the bottom and fish in the river in the fall and spring. But, um, crankbaits in general, like more, you like your shad style baits and that sort of thing. They also work, but I think a lot of it, you know, come to, you know, just off the top of my head, like if I was going to pull say lead core and a crankbait, well, a lot of times in the river in the spring, there's a lot of debris and that sort of thing. And so you get all that line out there and all of a sudden you finally, okay, now I'm ticking bottom. All right, this is perfect. And all of a sudden you look and your rod is just laying over dead. It's got a leaf on it. So then you try to, you know, you try to knock it off. You don't, you can't get it. Well, you got to reel it up. That takes time. Then you got to let it all back out. Now that takes time. Uh, A lot of times it's just not efficient, I think is the bottom line. Um, trying to get them out there. That's why when I when I do crank in the in the river more, I, I prefer to do it with 
just spinning rods and braid like a fire line. I use, I just, I cast them out there, set it in the rod holder and, uh, you know, I just watch it. If it's not hitting bottom, I let a little more line out. You know, obviously this is, that's more of a shallow water thing, you know, in that like 12 feet or less or so you can do that in. Um, but yeah, sometimes if you have to try to rely on lead core, it's just not efficient, you know, just too much stuff in the river. Um, it's not that they won't eat a crankbait. It's just more, you know, just trying to trying to get it in there in the strike zone for a long period of time is is a little tougher. Um, now, too, on the on the line of like shad style baits, kind of same thing with like the stick baits. I, I usually all start small with like a number five size and that sort of thing, or maybe even something without rattles, um, and then kind of work your way up. Eventually, you're going to be using bigger baits, jointed baits, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, just kind of same exact same idea with hand lining with pull lead core flat lining is just, you just kind of, you start small and work your way up and, uh, and also speed too, I feel like is a kind of a thing. Um, you know, you want to go kind of slow for the most part where you're just basically crawling up the current, just barely moving. And it kind of gives those fish a little bit more time to they don't like to chase things down necessarily right away in the spring when that water's cold. So you just kind of want to land one right in front of their nose. And a lot of times they'll open their mouth and take it. Um, now on the other token too, when you get to like a post spawn scenario, now them fish are going to chase it a little more. And what, what you see guys doing a lot on pool four, for instance, uh, once you get into that post spawn period, is guys will troll lead core downstream and they're, they troll fast. You know, now I don't do this a whole lot because I'm still a, I'm a hand liner. I'm, I'm going the other direction and catching them same fish. Um, but one thing that's been really popular and has won a lot of money in tournaments down in Mississippi river in the last several years is guys will troll downstream with lead core and they're cooking, you know, they're going upwards of four miles an hour, you know, for sure, usually over three. And it's pretty incredible the the success that guys are having doing that, you know, and I think that's another kind of like I talked about earlier, those post-spawn males a lot of times are just swatting at things. And I think there's a lot of that going on too is, uh, you know, it's just a reaction deal. They see that bait flying by them and then, then they take a shot at it once coming by and I think a lot of them are too, are, you know, they're post-spawn males, but you're also seeing a lot of females being caught with that technique, whether it's post-spawners that are, you know, trying to put the feedback back on or what it might be. But, um, yeah, no, lead crankbaits work always. I, I kind of chuckle when guys in the spring and the fall too, you'll, you'll hear guys say, oh, it's too cold to use crankbaits. <laughs> And that really can't be any further from the truth, you know. Like in the fall when I guide down there, pretty much all I pull for numbers is three ways and crankbaits. But one one more thing on that, I think, you know, when you think of crankbait fishing, at least my favorite way to fish a crankbait is to cast one, right? I mean, there's no better feeling than, than feeling a fish latch onto that. And I think the problem why casting a crankbait doesn't necessarily work that great in the early spring in the super cold water, a lot of times it's because I feel like your retrieve is too fast. Um, I know they did a study on, oh, I wish I could remember the exact numbers, but I, I, I saw a study done on a, a crankbait retrieve with like an average, uh, 
real, you know, as far as uh, gear ratio and that sort of thing. And basically the consensus was that crankbait is coming in way faster than you think, you know? So, so, so say you're trolling a crankbait, your target uh, speed is usually like one and three quarter to two and a half, right? Like, that, like that's where you're confident in getting bit. Well, now you go and cast a crankbait, whether you realize it or not, but that crankbait's actually going like three to four miles an hour. You're going way faster than you think. Typically is kind of what I learned with that. And I think, I think that's what happens in the, uh, in the river in the spring and that cold I've done it before. I've casted crankbaits before and not got bit. And I think a lot of it is because you're just burning too fast. Um, so one thing that I've gotten some bites on too, and you got to kind of have the right area. It's kind of got to be a little shallower. Uh, usually it's rock where I'll do this, but I'll throw a crankbait kind of at an angle down current, um, in riprap typically, and I'll just hold the rod and I'll just let the current work the crankbait. You know, so you'll kind of feel it bouncing off the rocks and you'll let it, you'll just let it work its way down that shelf. And then once the crankbait kind of ends up straight behind the boat, it's probably way off the bottom now. Then you reel it in and you do it again. You cast right up on the rocks, close as you can to shore, and you just hold it and you just let that, that bait just kind of wiggle its way down the bank. Um, versus now, if I did that same thing and cranked on it, like I typically would in the summer, right? that bait will just burn right through that area. And a lot of times them fish just aren't aggressive enough to go after it. Yeah. 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 I love all that information. When do you like on three ways or, or even hand lining, like, like what's the big difference in situation where say plastics uh, or, you know, that type of artificial bait, like a soft bait outperforms a hard bait or, a, you know, like a crank bait uh, on those types of setups? Uh, a lot of times it's, it is the water temperature is, is kind of uh, dictates that, you know, typically, you know, your plastics work really good in that cold water. Um, and I will troll plastics at times and usually, and I have hand lined them too before, but I just, I don't know. I wouldn't say that's anything to get too excited about. It works, but it doesn't work as good. I've hand lined about everything you could hand line from live bait to plastics to MEP spinners to spoons, like you name it. We've, I've drug about everything you can drag behind a, a wire, but um, you know, plastics are definitely a great way to fish in that cold water. That's what you see a lot going on right now. Uh, at home here by the Mississippi is guys will drag ringworms uh, upstream and downstream, just a jig in a, in a plastic, usually a, something with a little bit of a twister tail on the end or a paddle tail. Or the uh, way I like to pull them is on a Dubuque rig where you've got a, uh, it's exactly like a three-way setup. You have a dropper. But instead of a weight on your dropper, now you have a jig. It was This is another Mississippi River deal that was created uh, near Dubuque, Iowa. That's why you call it the Dubuque rig. But anyway, instead of having a bell sinker as your dropper that keeps the rig down on the bottom, now you have an actual heavy jig uh, anywhere from what it could be a half ounce, could be an ounce and a half, kind of depends on current and depth and that sort of thing. Um, but now on your jig, you could run a plastic on your jig, and then on your lead going back, uh, you could run all sorts of things. You could run a typical, a real typical setup is just like a smaller Aberdeen hook to another plastic, like another ringworm. 
Um, so you could run two ringworms in tandem, uh, but also on that lead to the back, you could run uh, live bait. A lot of times I'll run just like a plain hook and a fat head. You know, again, like we were talking earlier, when you get into that cold water, tough bites, sometimes that fat head minnow is, is hard to beat. You know, it just gets you some extra bites. But um, definitely prefer not to use that. I prefer to just to put two plastics on there and and drag it around that way. But yeah, plastics are a big, it's kind of a big thing right now, this time of year down there. And with hand lining and stuff like that, cranking, you know, the cold water, the three ways, the Dubuque rigs, like, is it always just like one thing as the seasons go by, it, it does it roll through where, you know, well, you know, now we're in Dubuque rig season, now we're in hand lining season, or is every day, I mean, are are you using these sorts of strategies and techniques in tandem with each other? Like, what are, what are some of those like one two punches that all these things kind of work with? Oh, I think a lot of that is has to do with you know as the time of the year changes, the areas where these fish live change, and I think that's why your fishing techniques are a lot different. You know, for instance, in the spring, a lot of times fish are near the dam. You know, they're near a tail race. They go upstream to spawn. You know, so a lot of times now you're fishing. uh, Oftentimes the water's low at that time, too. So you're fishing. You could be fishing in the middle of the channel in 20, 30 feet. You know, now in a month from now, you're post-spawn. The water's coming up, might even be getting close to flood stage. You know, now the fish are pushed up against the banks. Well, the same thing that you were fishing in 30 feet of water isn't going to work when you're trying to cast up in the trees now. You know, it's completely different. So a lot of times, uh, I think what dictates what you're going to use is kind of where the river's at uh, as far as level and then also time of the year. You know, a lot of times... Uh, spring spawning they're going to be in one place and now in the summer they're going to be in a completely different place you know whether it's the wing dams or uh you know a lot of times like the saugers for instance will just live on these big flats uh you know maybe on a river bend or something like that uh you know obviously pool four is a completely different deal because you got lake pepin and a lot of the fish end up on lake pepin and now you can do all sorts of things out there. You know, we weren't, we're not really even talking river fishing anymore when we talk about Lake Pepin. That's more of a reservoir. You're pulling lead core. You're pulling bottom bouncers and slow death. You're trolling crankbaits, um, crankbaits and planer boards suspended. That was a, a big thing out there again this year. Um, so that's, that's kind of a completely different devil. But when I think of a just a river system, you know, just a river spring it's one thing summer completely different they're gonna they're gonna kind of spread out all over that system up and down it on different uh usually rock a lot of times the walleyes are going to be on rock structures whether it's a riprap shoreline or a wing dam and saugers are kind of a different devil too they like they like that sand sand dunes they sit in them sand dunes and kind of ambush their uh their food that way realistically a crankbait of some sort, a crankbaiting technique of some sort could be pretty effective in any season, but in so many different situations, but where the fish live will dictate the delivery system. And, you know, just so many of those other decisions, you know, for anybody, you know, as anglers, you just got to make that assessment. You got to make that assessment of the situation you're in. But yeah, I get so many questions on cranking in different scenarios. And this spring, cold water cranking was just um 
it was just such a popular write-in that I had. And so I'm really glad we've covered some really great stuff here, man, like really, really great stuff. And I appreciate your time. If there's, if there's nothing else that just pops into your head, any other stories that you could tell about, you know, just like those horrible cold spring weather events that you've had and had to fish your way out of, um, I just love hearing all that stuff. Well, now that you mentioned that, there's obviously one that really comes to mind, and that was last year. Um, the, the National Walleye Tour event on Detroit River, that was that had to be the worst practice slash tournament that myself and I think a lot of the guys have been fishing I think a long everybody, time. I think everybody said that was the worst situation oh. they've ever been in. It was terrible. It was so cold that it was, it was like a game of, okay, what's going to be frozen today? You know, when you get up in the morning, you go out to the boat, it might be like a lid to a compartment or all of our drain plugs were frozen and um, like tilts and trims, like guys couldn't get their transom savers off. And like you, it was terrible. Everything, power poles, uh, guys were having problems charging lithium batteries and it was everything it was uh, it put everything to the test and and that was bad and the fishing say same thing it was okay when we first started and it just kind of slowly that water temperature just slowly started creeping down and like i talked about right away when you get one of them fronts when the water's already cold it, it was recipe for disaster you know, not a lot of limits were caught. Um, I handlined pretty much the whole time, which I was super confident in, but I still, I couldn't catch a limit. I was only catching a few fish each day. And, um, yeah, that's one we don't ever want to think about again. That was terrible. <laughs> yeah. But it humbles you, right? Won. Yeah. It humbles you in the, yeah. Like somebody's going to catch them, right? That's the beauty of tournaments and the learning. Like, you know, those stories almost have to be told to the, to the, general public it, it's a brutal as a tournament angler to be like forced into something like that that's just so painful it, it wrecks all your stuff it's like even if you you know you just about got to have a top three finisher you're not going to make any money because you're just every day is just you're just losing everything you got but it's like but i mean there's just, just the industry like i don't know for people that are really trying to learn or really trying to consume what you know, good information that comes out of the tournament world and all that, you know, all the learning and all the, you know, following on social media and seeing you guys have your daily updates during pre-fish and all that stuff is just so, I just love all that stuff. I mean, you just, you know, just knowing what you're going through just helps me gain better perspective, set better expectations for myself, make better decisions ultimately. Like, you know, the, there's no, uh, substitute for that experience. You got to go out and experience it for yourself, but man, like I can take little nuggets away from from all that stuff, all the content and all the, you know, just everything that you guys are willing to share about that stuff because it just, you know, it just sets a good expectation. You kind of you go through the tough days, and, and there's always more of those than good days typically uh, if you fish enough. Um, yeah, man, yeah, just good stuff. There, absolutely, there is, and I feel like I've been doing it so long, I almost take it for granted, and I haven't. In the last few years have not been very good for me either, and. But I, you know, I get reminded all the time that people are still watching, you know, no matter what. And I know they appreciate the, the updates and the stories and, you know, just to know, you know, whether it's somebody that just likes fishing and is curious about it, or maybe it's somebody that might be going to that body of water in the future, or, or maybe it's a, a person that's trying to be a tournament fisherman. You know, there's, there's always somebody watching. So, you know, we try to try to bring some of that experience, uh, to the people at home and 
you know, we're going to keep on doing it, getting ready to start another season here pretty soon. And hopefully, oh, it's going to be another cold one, but I don't think it's going to top Detroit River last year. No way. There's just no way. (laughs) All right, man. We'll talk to you. All right. Later.